It's great to be together again this morning to worship together, to study God's Word together. Uh, according to the traditional church calendar, Lent is a six-week season leading up to Good Friday and Easter. It is traditionally a time of contemplation and sacrifice. If giving something up for Lent helps you to think about what Jesus gave up for you, that's good. But now as believers, what about this? What about rather than giving something up, we understand this season to be a time when we receive something. It's a time when we remember that a sacrifice was already made on our behalf. Jesus took our guilt and the wrath of God that our sins deserve. And what is our part? To respond to his sacrifice with trust, repentance, and faith. But we do not contribute to Jesus' sacrifice. It's all his work on our behalf. We simply receive it in gratitude and joy. So we are going to be taking a break from our study in Acts. We'll take the next three Sundays with Good Friday in the middle to focus on thinking in an even more specific way than usual towards what Jesus did for us. And so come as you are with nothing but empty hands and repentant hearts. So this morning, as Glenn mentioned, we're going to be looking at Psalm 44 when suffering makes no sense. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at Palm Sunday, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a king, sort of. Then Good Friday, we will meet together Good Friday evening, 7 to 7.45. We're hoping that it'll be a very special, quiet service. The elders will be leading us through scriptures, narrating what Jesus chose to do 2,000 years ago. The service will include the Lord's table. Uh, that, that month's or this month's Lord's table will be on Good Friday evening. And will not include singing with the hope that many of us can, can be together. And then Easter Sunday, a look at the anchor of our faith, the resurrection. So we're looking forward to this season when we remember Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. So this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 44. I've been very eager to share this psalm with you after reading it a couple months ago as part of reading through the Bible this year. And I found at least four surprises, that were for me anyway, in this psalm. And I had to go back and look at it again because it didn't fit my expectations. Uh, it's actually, it's a psalm about suffering and the confusion that often arises in the midst of suffering. And it's a great reminder of where our hope truly lies. So uh, before we dig into Psalm 44, I'd like us just to pause again and uh, I'd like to pray to center us for our study. Lord, I ask that your spirit would guide us in our study this morning. I ask that he would allow me to make it clear what you would speak to us from your word. May he open our minds to understand what you have for us today. May he open our hearts to take it in. May he open our wills to follow you in whatever you ask of us today. And we ask that you would indeed take our lives today, our time, our hands, our feet, our voices, our possessions, our minds, our wills, our hearts, and let all our lives be consecrated, dedicated, submitted to you. And we ask by the grace and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, Psalm 44. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 44. And please uh, follow along. I'll be teaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. 
Psalm 44, the first eight verses that Glenn read for us, is actually uh, in two parts, a remembrance of God, a remembrance of God. If you look there in verse one, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us. So this first remembrance is in the past. The people who are existing at the time this psalm was written, written are looking back to the experience of those who came before them. And they say, we have heard from those who went before us about God's great rescue and about his salvation. With your hands, you drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but then you set free. And they tell of God rescuing them because of his love for them, not their strength. If you look in verse 3, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. They did not win the land. They did not accomplish these victories over their enemies by their own strength, by their own sword, by their own bow, but because of God's love for them, he intervened for them. So they're looking back to the experience of their fathers. Then they look at their own experience in the present. And we can see that in verse 4. Well, you are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. They go through a list of things that you have rescued us from our enemies. And we also did not trust in our own efforts. But we acknowledge that it is you, God, who saves us. We boast in God. We give thanks to God. In verse 6, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes. And then in verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Bottom line, God, we have trusted in you completely. You, we have seen your great power to save us, and we boast in you and we praise you. What great news! a great celebration, a happily ever after story of God's salvation. You may notice the little word Selah in there in the Bible. It's often marked differently, perhaps in italics or set aside. It's unclear exactly what that word means. It's probably not meant to be read. It's felt to be a, a musical term. Uh, the Psalms were songs that were sung, and it's believed to be a musical term that meant something to the effect of take a pause, take an interruption. I once heard Chuck Swindoll say this about Selah, think about this. It's a word that's placed in there just to make us pause. Think about what was just sung. Think about the words that are there. Think about the truth of what's going on. So the writer here relates the past experience of the fathers, their own present experience of God's great salvation in their midst, and they are celebrating that. And he says, he inserts Selah there as a way of providing a musical interlude for people to meditate on the truths of what have just been said. But as we get to verse 9, it's possible that some of the people who are greatly celebrating are looking up in the sky and seeing some dark clouds starting to form in the midst of this great celebration. And let's read verses 9 to 16 and see how the mood changes. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. 
You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Wow, what happened? They say in the midst of this celebration, but God, we are suffering. We are suffering. And there are two things to notice about this suffering. The first is the nature of that suffering. What happened? What's going on? And that was detailed in verses 9 to 14. Rejected and disgraced. We turn back from our enemies. We are like sheep for the slaughter. We are sold cheaply. We experience the taunt, the derision, and the scorn of our neighbors. We're a laughingstock among the peoples. And then he summarizes it in verse 15 and 16. Because of the enemies, my disgrace and shame is constantly before me, and we're constantly hearing the sounds of the taunters and the revilers. Well, what about the source of their suffering? And this is where the first surprise, I, I think I said there were four surprises that I, for me anyway, I found in here. This is the first one. Look at the pronouns in verses nine to 16 that is consistently mentioned as the cause. I'll just give you a moment there to look at the pronouns. Anybody want to venture? What is the pronoun? It is you. It's not we. These problems are not coming because of we. And it's not they. These problems are not coming because of they. It's coming because of you. Then who is the you in this psalm? God is the you in this psalm. Anytime throughout this psalm, when it's talking about you, they are talking to God. God is the cause of this suffering. So if you look at, again, verses 9 to 16, you have rejected us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You, you, you are the one that has brought this suffering upon us. Well, what's going on here? Well, as I was reading this psalm, it's very obvious what's going on here. So I invite you to keep your fingers in here, but turn back to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, because to me, as I was reading this, I, I perfectly understood what was going on here. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving people the law, refreshing their minds as God prepares to lead them into the land that he promised for them. And in Deuteronomy 11, Moses says, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. And here in Deuteronomy 28, let's look at verses 1 and 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then jump down to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. They understood the concept of blessing and curse. They knew the drill. You do what is right in God's eyes and experience blessing, peace, and victory over your enemies. 
do what is wrong in God's eyes, and you experience suffering, hardship, and defeat at the hands of your enemies. Surely, that's what's going on here in Psalm 44. And don't we understand that as well? If we are suffering as individuals or as a church or as families, don't we want to know why? What did we do wrong so we can fix it or at least understand it? Surely, suffering means that we did something wrong to deserve it. So when I was reading this psalm, my reaction at this point was to ask the question, well, what did they do wrong to deserve this suffering? However, their suffering is not so simple to calculate as we would like to think. And this is where the psalm starts to get to the heart of something I believe we need to know about God. And so in verses 17 to 21, we come up with the second surprise. Let me read those. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's another but implied in these verses. They're saying, but in the midst of our suffering, we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. We have not walked in the ways that depart from you. We have not forgotten the name of our God. We have not worshipped any false gods. God, we have loved you. We have done nothing wrong. We have done all of the right things. And yet, and yet, and yet, here we are. In verse 19, they say, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals. I looked that up. It's very interesting. I I didn't know what the jackals had to do with this. Jackals are a dog-like animal that tends to inhabit inhabit areas where humans used to live, but now no longer live. It's It's ruins, broken down, deserted places. So what they're saying is that, God, you've broken us, and we feel like we're in this place of jackals. We're living in the ruins of our lives. We're living in the desolate, desperate places that have been ruined that once there was prosperity, once there was life, and now there is ruin. And they they go on to say, you have covered us with the shadow of death. Not only are they living in this desolate place of ruins, but they are despairing of life itself and may in fact be in danger of dying. This is suffering that does not make sense. This is suffering that does not make sense. Have you ever been there? God, why am I suffering? This suffering does not make sense. I cannot tie it to something that I have said, done, someplace I've gone. This makes no sense. There is no connection between any wrongdoing we had done and the suffering we are experiencing. Well, my first reaction is, well, maybe they were wrong in their assessment. Well, there's no reason to think that they were wrong in their assessment. And isn't that frustrating when it happens to us? It feels easier to understand and deal with if we can just draw a straight line between something we did wrong and the suffering we're experiencing. But there's no such line here. There's no line. 
They give us a clue to the source of their suffering in verse 22, to their understanding of that source. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. Yet for your sake, because of you, God, because of you. And I believe what's being communicated here is that the reason for their suffering is hidden in the purposes and ways of God that are beyond their understanding, beyond their ability to find out. The reason for their suffering is hidden in the purposes and ways of God that that are beyond their understanding and beyond their ability to find out. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later when this suffering makes no sense. Well, in verses 23 to 26, we see two responses to this senseless suffering. And let me just read those verses, and then we'll come back and comment on them. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There are two responses here, as I said, to this senseless suffering. The first is an expression of confusion and pain. See if you can find yourself in any of these responses to suffering. God is sleeping. God is unaware, perhaps lazy. He's inattentive. He's not there. Well, maybe God has rejected us. He's angry at us. He doesn't want to have anything to do with us because he's angry. Or they say, why do you hide your face? God is hiding from us. He doesn't care. He's not interested. Or God has forgotten about us. He has more important things to do. And as I've talked to many of you over the years, I've heard some of these things come out. Well, God doesn't care about my little problems. He has more important things to do. God's rejected me because of things that I have done. And again, I don't know if you can find yourself in there. I can see myself in there. And not only that, in verse 25, they say, we have gone as low as we can go, short of death itself. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. It's just, it's this picture of someone on all fours struggling to take the next step on all fours. That is how badly beaten down they are. It is certainly understandable to have these feelings and thoughts in the midst of suffering that makes no sense. And this is, just as a side note, one of the beautiful things of the Psalms, isn't it? It's okay to honestly voice these raw emotions to God. He knows our hearts, and he invites us to come and share our deepest fears and concerns. And the Psalms give us words to express things that are often inexpressible. So their first response is this expression of confusion and pain. Their second response, though, look, is in verse 26. It's an expression of faith. It's an expression of faith. They still turn to him as their only hope, the only one who can rescue them. Rise up, come to our help. That's speaking to God. Rise up, God, come to our help. Redeem us. They did not become embittered against God or turn away from him, as is so often the case. I know 
It's so easy to do so when suffering doesn't make sense. And their plea is a desperate cry of faith to the only one who can help them. They're aware that they're here for his sake because he has brought them here and they're crying to him for deliverance, for rescue. They don't turn from him, but it's a desperate cry of faith to the only one who can help them. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us, rescue us, save us. And then they say, not because we deserve it or what we have done, but God, because of who you are, for the sake of your steadfast love for the sake of your steadfast love. Their belief in and their awareness of God's love for them is not shattered, not broken. That word steadfast love, or two words, steadfast love, is actually one word in the Hebrew which carries all three meanings of something that's unfailing, something that is strong, and something that is loving. It's communicating this idea that God's love, God's care for us is unfailing, it's unwavering, it will never end, and it is combined with a strength, an overwhelming strength that it can accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished to rescue us from what we're doing. God has a steadfast love for us. It will never end, it will never fail, and not only does he care about us deeply, he has the power to do whatever needs to be done to rescue us. But we need to notice how this psalm ends. And that was the third surprise for me. They pray in hope and confidence that God will rescue him. But what's missing? There's no rescue. There's no victorious resolution, unlike many psalms. If you read many psalms, they'll go through the lament, and God, where are you? And we're suffering, would you help us? And then the end, there's a resolution. God, thank you. You have rescued us. You have saved us. We will praise you. There is no such thing here. Their prayer ends with a hope that is so far unfulfilled. The psalm ends with them still waiting. It ends with them still waiting. So what about us? How do we respond to suffering that makes no sense? What are our challenges? And I'm just going to throw out a few questions to think about. When do I offer the loudest praise for God's steadfast love for me? When things are going well or in the midst of suffering? It's easy for us to remember God's love for us when things are going well, but when we're suffering, especially when suffering makes no sense, are we so quick to remember God's steadfast love for us? Do I question God's love for me during painful and frightening episodes of suffering that makes no sense? And where is God anyway in the midst of this suffering? Do I respond with anger, bitterness, confusion, fear? Do I assume that God must not exist or must not really care? Where do I turn for relief in the midst of this suffering? And what would God need to do to show me his steadfast love, to prove to me that he loves me? And I believe, as I said, it's okay to ask the questions. That's where we go for the answers that is key. In thinking about this, I came across an article from Tim Keller. Many of you know him as the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a great statesman of our faith, a great believer who has contributed much to Christian thought over the years. He is currently 70 years old. 
and currently suffering from advanced pancreatic cancer. And he's undergoing treatments and obviously not expected to uh, beat this. In an article that was posted online in March 7th of this year, entitled, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, with the subtitle, I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis, why I'd be able to take my own advice. As he's facing death face to face, he's been forced to, to review the realities. I've been teaching this and telling others, do I really believe it myself? The answer is yes, but it's a struggle. It's a suffering that makes no sense. He offers in this article at least three things for us to think about when suffering makes no sense. The first, he says, why is it that people in prosperous modern societies seem to struggle so much with the existence of evil, suffering, and death? He said the answer is that we hold the modern assumption that we all deserve a comfortable life. We hold the modern assumption that we all deserve a comfortable life. And so if you believe that we deserve a comfortable life and God owes us a comfortable life and life is not comfortable, then what happens? Your faith in God becomes questioned, becomes challenged because God owes us a comfortable life. I don't know if you've ever been there where that's what you think. I know I'm tempted to be there. The second reason, he says, we have become so confident, and I, and I love this as he, as he lays this out, we have become so confident in our powers of logic, that if we cannot imagine any good reason that suffering exists, we assume there can't be one. We are so confident in our powers of logic that if we cannot imagine any good reason that suffering exists, we assume there can't be one. But if there is a God, he says, great enough to merit your anger over the suffering you witness or endure, then there's a God great enough to have reasons for allowing it that you can't detect. It's not logical to believe in an infinite God and still be convinced that you can add up the sums of good and evil as he does, or to grow angry that he doesn't always see things the way you do. So we accept the modern assumption that we deserve a comfortable life, we are so confident in our powers of logic that we can say, oh God, this doesn't make sense, therefore it must not make sense. And thirdly, people say that their suffering makes faith in God impossible. Suffering makes faith in God impossible. And you've heard variations of that. If God really existed, why am I suffering? If God really is a loving God who exists, then why is there this suffering? Why is there that suffering? He goes on to say, but it is the fact of their overconfidence in themselves and their abilities that sets people up for anger, fear, and confusion. Suffering doesn't make faith in God impossible. What makes faith in God impossible is our trying to figure things out ourselves. We have an overconfidence in our own abilities to evaluate what's going on. What's the bottom line? When we turn from God because of suffering that we don't understand, we are in reality putting ourselves in the place of God. We're assuming we know better than he does how to run the universe. Anybody been there? I've been there, done that. God, really, I don't know why this is working out this way. I, I have a whole list of reasons that, and ways this could have worked out better the other way. I don't see why it's worked out this way. So 
suffering in our lives, particularly suffering that makes no sense, brings us to a decision point. Are we going to trust in God's wisdom and purposes, or are we going to trust in our own assessment of the situation? In the words of the psalm, are we going to trust in our own bow, our own sword, our own arm? Are we going to trust in our resources, or are we going to trust in God? Are we going to trust that since God could have stopped this suffering, yet chose not to, then maybe there's some good purpose that is greater than we can see? And are we going to trust that God's purposes are rooted in his steadfast love for us? All right, I can admit that God allowed this suffering in my life for his purposes, but he's mean, he's not being kind, he's not being loving. No, whatever God brings into our lives is rooted in his steadfast love for us. We must not misinterpret the data Suffering doesn't come to us because God has forgotten us or failed to love us. But suffering does remind us of our frailty and that we need a Savior. We need a Savior who loves us very much. Well, I'd like to turn now and look at who this psalm applies to. And in here contains the fourth and perhaps the most profound surprise of this psalm. First of all, it applies to the Jewish people at the time that this was written. Now, the exact historical context is not clear. We don't know what, they were, what period of history this is, what they were going through. But what is clear is they were suffering because of God's purposes that were beyond their understanding. It was a suffering that made no sense to them. There were times, if you look through the Old Testament, you look through Judges, there, they were suffering. There were times clearly they had disobeyed God. They turned from God, and God brought them into suffering. There clearly was a straight line between their decisions and their suffering. But in this case, there was not. But it was referring to the Jewish people then. What about God's people today? Take us and our own church. Just like the psalmist, don't we look back to the glory days of Grace Chapel when there were standing room only in the church, chairs down the center of the aisle, the building was full, lots was going on. We look back to those glory days and we acknowledge God's great work as they trusted in him. Don't we look at our own past experience, our own, our own experience itself, and see the great things he has done as we put our trust in him and not ourselves? Well, if that's the case, all of these things that God has done in us and through us, then why are we suffering now? Why does life seem so hard? Why are things so confusing and unsettled? I was thinking, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of my accident about a year and a half ago. Many of you, or maybe perhaps most of you, remember I was biking to work, as I often do. Uh, not doing anything wrong. I wasn't careless. I wasn't flippant. I wasn't foolhardy. I was actually saving gas because I was riding my bike to work instead of driving my car. I was getting exercising, taking good care of my body. I was doing all the right things. I was, had not as best we can tell, made a foolish decision. The, the weather was cold, 36, 37 degrees. There had been no rain. The weather was clear, sun was shining. And as I'm coming down uh, Upper Darby, past the police station there, coming to 69th Street Station, I hit a patch of ice. I went down instantly hard on my left hip. Fractured my pelvis, required surgery. A couple days later, I was out of work for three and a half months. And I remember talking to a person here at the church as we were meeting together. And she said, well, I expect that 
somewhere through the course of this that you're going to understand why God did all this. And I said, you know, to the contrary, I'm expecting to not know why God did this. One thing I have learned over the years is it's okay to ask God the question why, but it's not often we're going to get an answer or be able to figure it out. So can I see good things that came out of it? I found what a wonderful caregiver my wife is. I found out what a wonderful family we have who was supportive of us. I found out what a wonderful church family that we have that was so supportive and loving. I found out lots of nice things. But I didn't need the accident to tell me that. I already knew those things. Why did this happen? I don't know why it happened. I'm not expecting to know why it happened. If God would be gracious to let me know, perhaps. But it was a suffering that made no sense. There was no direct line between a bad decision and my injury. God's ways are beyond our ways. But like the psalmist, let's not, un- let's not as- insist on knowing why God does what he does, but together let us diligently, desperately seek him and his rescue, and then wait. Wait for him to act. But there is someone else, referred to the Jewish people at the time, there's application for us, but there's someone else this psalm applies to, and here's where the fourth surprise comes in. I'm going to lead you in this to see if you can figure this out, and I think you will. If you think about it, who was a person who knew God's power perfectly to deliver people and save them from their enemies? Who ever totally trusted in God without ever wavering, never once disobeying. But, like a lamb was led to the slaughter, as it says here in the Psalms, he was rejected and disgraced. He was sold for a trifle. God didn't even make a profit on that sale as he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was the taunt of his neighbors, receiving derision and scorn. And he was the laughingstock of those who witnessed his crucifixion. I hope by now you've figured out who this person is. There is no more senseless suffering, no more senseless death in the world than Jesus, the sinless one, suffering and dying the way he did. There is no more senseless suffering than Jesus. But hear this, because I believe this is perhaps the key to this psalm. What makes no sense from our side made perfectly good sense to God. What made no sense from our side. Imagine yourself being one of those disciples, one of his followers, seeing all this play out, seeing Jesus, the one they thought was going to be the Savior of the world, dying on the cross. His life ended. It made no sense. But what made no sense to them made perfectly good sense to God. Jesus' senseless suffering is what accomplished our salvation from sin. This was God's eternal plan. This was not something that God made up along the way. Oh, wait, they're putting Jesus on the cross. How am I going to fix this? This was God's eternal plan. 
that in a suffering that made no sense from this side, made perfectly good sense to God. And I just think that that's how we need to look at our suffering that makes no sense. It makes no sense to us. But I believe it was Tim Keller also who once said, if you knew what God knew about you and about your life and about what this universe is about, you would order your life exactly the same way that it's being ordered right now. Because just because it doesn't make sense to us doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to God. So Jesus' senseless suffering, his death on the cross, is what led to his resurrection, and he conquered death, and he conquered sin for us. This was God's eternal plan. So he could fulfill verse 26 of Psalm 44. So he could rise up and come to our help. So he could redeem us. Why? For the sake of his steadfast love for us. It's a rescue that we tasted of when we became followers of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of him, I invite you into that relationship today. I'd be happy to talk to you about that later. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, this senseless suffering, he rescued us which we have tasted now when we become followers of Jesus. But we will wait. We will wait for his return for us because it is not yet fully complete. Just as this psalm ends with a cry for help and a waiting, our lives are in that same pattern. We have come to Jesus for his help, for his forgiveness, for his grace, for his mercy in our lives. And he has granted that to us. But we wait. We wait we wait for his return to fully bring this. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this psalm and the perfect proof of God's steadfast love for us. Yes, the psalm applies to the Jewish people at the time. Yes, the psalm applies to us. There are things we can learn from this. But Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this psalm and the proof of God's steadfast love for us. Well, I'd like to conclude this and by inviting you to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verse 36. This might sound familiar to you. Paul writes, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a direct quote from Psalm 44. So Paul in this great chapter 8 of Romans, is quoting Psalm 44, 26. It refers to our suffering for God's sake, for the sake of his purposes. Because of what he has ordained for our lives, there is suffering. But look what's on either side of this verse. Look in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then look on verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the midst of our suffering that makes no sense, we ask ourselves, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God, do you still love me? And the resounding answer is no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God has not forgotten his love for us. He has not forgotten his care for us. Even though it doesn't make sense to us. Even though we can't figure it out. 
God knows perfectly well what he's doing. Things may happen to you that are outside your ability to understand. I know they are for me. I still don't understand that accident, for example, and there's lots of things I don't understand. But they are never outside God's steadfast love for you. They are never outside his ability to rescue you in his time. God is not shocked by our struggles in the midst of suffering, but he will always respond to us out of his steadfast love. And I might add, whether our suffering makes sense or not, you may be sitting here, I don't want you sitting here saying, okay, that's fine if the suffering doesn't make sense, but I'm suffering because I did something wrong. God still loves you. His mercy is still there. His grace is still there. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's why he came. He didn't didn't come for perfect people. He came for us as sinners. God loves us. So whatever the source of our suffering, God loves us and he's able to rescue us. And Jesus' suffering was not just to forgive our sins so we can go to heaven, but also, also to free our hearts to love him more and to love him only. And we can start that today. So when you experience suffering that makes no sense, remember Psalm 44, 26. Turn to the only one who can help. Lord, rise up and come to my help. Rest in the reality that he will help you for the sake of your steadfast love. And how do we know that God loves us? The cross is all the proof that we need. And then wait for his perfect timing. Now, sometimes God rescues us in the now. He does rescue us in the now when we put our faith in him, we put our trust in him, and we can, there are many testimonies here, I'm sure, of God's help in our lives. That's possible. But our rescue later is guaranteed. Guaranteed. When Jesus comes back for us, as we continue to wait, Jesus is coming back for us to take us to his kingdom where there will be no suffering or pain or death forever and ever. So may we grow to trust in God's steadfast love for us, even in, or should I say especially in, the midst of the pain and confusion of suffering that makes no sense. Amen. Let's just pause for a moment. I'd just like to pause silence as we reflect on these things and then I will close in prayer. Father, it seems hard to to end right here you have led us to a deep and profound place to recognize that just because suffering makes no sense to us does not mean that it does not make perfect sense to you. Forgive us for trying to figure out all the whys, to figure out the reasons, to understand explanations of things that are beyond our ability to understand or that you have chosen to withhold from us but help us to trust you. Thank you for this reminder that when we encounter times of suffering that make no sense, we can trust in your steadfast love for us. We can know that you are for us and not against us. 
we can know that through your suffering we are free. Death has been crushed to death. Life is ours to live. We have been saved through your selfless, steadfast love for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to cry out with the psalmist, rise up, Lord, and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your love, for your steadfast love. And then help us to wait in restful hope for your rescue to come in your time and your way, whether it is now in this life or whether for sure when you come back for us, when you make all things new and all things right. May we trust in you more as individuals, as families, as a church, as we wait to see what it is that you will do in our lives to draw us closer to yourself, to love you, to love one another, to love our community, and to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.